Well, numbers are beautiful. That is a, an objective statement that I'm putting before you. Numbers are beautiful. Mathematics is beautiful. Symmetry is, is beautiful. If you agree with me on those, you, you probably find beauty in all sorts of systems and structures and arrangements and categorization and stuff like that. If you don't agree with me, don't know how you could, but if you don't, you probably find more beauty in art, in uh, interpretation, perhaps in uh, imagination and creativity, things like that. You, you like the meaning of words much more than, say, the, the grammar or how words work scientifically. You like the emotive impact of poetry, for example, more than so the, the, the structure. One of the qualities of Psalm 139 is its beautiful harmony of both structure and emotion. That on the one hand, it is this beautiful, heartfelt poem about the character of God and, of course, the psalmist's response to him. And the words are just like overflowing with meaning, with expression, you know, with wonderful thoughts about God. But on the other hand, it's also beautifully structured. It's beautifully structured. There's four groups of six verses in this poem, each of them focusing on a different angle of God's knowledge, presence, power, and justice. And the first four verses of each group, they kind of describe God's nature and how that relates to the psalmist. And then the last two verses of each group kind of show the deep impact that it has on the psalmist. It's a beautiful structure. But that's just one of the psalm's amazing harmonies. There's also a perfect balance of both epic, heady doctrine or theology, as well as personal, intimate praise. You know, the writer offers this gigantic view of God's omniscience, which means he knows everything, his omnipresence, that he is everywhere, and his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful, and, of course, his holy justice. But he does all of this in, in these personal, intimate terms. You know, it's about how God knows me, how God is with me, how God made me and crafted me, and how God tests and judges me. It's beautiful. After the, the Reformation service last Sunday afternoon, where we looked at the glory of God and, and a, a number of these huge passages about how big and amazing God is, I was observing to a few people how wherever we find that in Scripture, it nearly always comes with how it personally impacts us and how it encourages us and helps us. This mind-blowing scope comes right down to our hearts. And if all that weren't enough, there is actually a third wonderful harmony in this psalm, which is both the comfort and the threat of these truths. That God's knowledge, presence, power and justice, they both threaten our autonomy and they comfort us in our lost and lonely state. It's like a classic scene in a 
scary movie. Perhaps at the end when the shadowy villain or monster you know, is, 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 is threateningly approaching the only surviving victim and reaches out at the last minute to grab them and then it's revealed to be a friend, to be a, a comforter, a rescuer at the last minute. And so as we go through this psalm, I really hope that we can walk this balance of these attributes and and appreciate the harmony of it. This is a favourite psalm of people for a reason, so let's try and feast on it. Firstly, God knows everything, which means He knows me. The eyes of the Lord, the Bible says, are everywhere, keeping watch on both the wicked and the good. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. God is omniscient. He sees everything, everywhere, all at once. He's got x-ray vision, which sees into the deepest depths of our hearts. To God's sight, we are bared and vulnerable. Every cell, every gene, every molecule in full view. And not just that, as the psalmist reminds us in the opening verses, all of our thoughts, all of our movements, all of our ways, all of our words, all of our feelings, uncovered laid bare, revealed. It's like the body of a dissected rat on the table in your biology class. That is your soul before God. It's all out there. Now that's threatening, isn't it? That's incredibly threatening. That someone is out there reading your mind, knowing your thoughts and your feelings. It's the ultimate invasion of privacy. You know, in our world, we all about privacy. This is, just, this is just the ultimate invasion. And maybe this is the reason that you don't believe in God. Or maybe you feel that you can live a good life, or at least pretty good, as long as nobody reads your mind. But God is God. If He does exist, if the Bible is right, about God, then he sees what he sees. That is his right, that is his responsibility. And and why do we think that our thoughts should only be ours in the first place? Just because other people can't read them, why, why does that mean they should be only ours, private? I mean, where does our ability to think come from? Where does our ability to reason and to feel and to choose, where does that come from? Could it be from the God who made us. And if you can accept that, accept the reality, then God's infinite knowledge is no longer a threat, but it's a comfort. To see the depths of our hearts, it means that He always knows what is wrong with us. That is, He has perfect diagnosis. And He always knows what we need, the perfect treatment. You know, he surpasses x-rays and MRIs and endoscopes and explorative surgeries, all of that stuff. He sees everything perfectly and on a spiritual level. 
And so he can treat it perfectly. He sees sin at the deepest level of our hearts and he can target it precisely. With his scalpel, which Hebrews says is the word of God, he can target it precisely. And he gives his son, Jesus Christ, to die and offer us life. To give us a heart transplant or a spirit transplant. To eradicate our spiritual cancer. And so John says in his letter, if our hearts condemn us, which they do, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And he can do this, not just for you, but for others around you. For the believers here, God's omniscience bolsters our evangelism and discipleship. Our prayers and our conversations, because he sees the deepest depths of everyone. And he chooses when to reflect that back on people, when to shine a light on the insides of people. And he uses us to do it. His word and his people. We don't have to see what he sees. We can't and we don't need to. We don't have to know what he knows. We are just his tools. He's the surgeon. And he knows everything. Secondly then, God is everywhere. He's everywhere. Which means that he is with me. Who can hide in the secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. He fills the earth and he fills the heavens. He fills the physical realm and he fills the spiritual realm. Which means, as Jeremiah and the psalmist both confess, he is inescapable. He's inescapable. We can't get away. Even if you could go to the deepest depths of the ocean, which you can't, or if you could go to the farthest reaches of space, which you can't, even if you could, you could not hide from God. Jonah tried to do that. He went to a city called Tarshish, and it was sort of one of the cities on the very edge of the known world. It's like, I'm going to Tarshish. God won't be there. Running from God is like chasing the horizon. It's a futile escapade. At the moment, uh, Evie's at that age where she's perfect for those futile attempts at hiding, running and hiding when she doesn't want to do something. And even if you've been to a house, you know, it's tiny, it's pokey. Even there, it's like, I'll tuck into a corner, I'll hide behind a couch. But it's no use. We can always see her. We're always within reach. And so it is with God. We cannot run and we cannot hide. And yes, that's threatening. It is. It is another invasion of privacy. If you try and lock yourself away at home or in your room, just you and your TV, God is there. If you try to escape into fiction or escape onto the internet, God is there. God is everywhere. 
If you try to run from experience to experience, he's there. But if you turn and face him, if you accept the reality, then his omnipresence becomes a comfort, a great comfort. As verse 10 says, he becomes a guide and a guard to us. He shows us the way through life and he protects us on the journey. He's with us. Danger will no longer carry the same fear as it otherwise would. Darkness, it says, is not dark to God. He turns our darkness into day. You know, so we can read things like this in Isaiah, again, around where we were last week. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, dangers, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. This is a great, great comfort to every person who deals with trials in life, as we all do. But it's also a great comfort for the believer who goes on Christ's mission to make disciples of all nations. As Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission, And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. God is wherever we go. He's with the one who goes and he's with the one who they go to. And where he goes, the night will shine like the day. Thirdly then, God made all time which means God made my days. God made everything. Again, Jeremiah, he says, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. God is omnipotent, we say. That means he's all-powerful. He created the universe. And so he's above the universe, which means he can do anything that he wants within the universe. He created time, which means that he is above time, so he can do anything that he wants within time. He is the Lord of time and space. And this part of the psalm, it reminds us that God is also at work in our time, in our past and present and future. And here's this beautiful harmony again that the God who designed the universe, who, as we sing, flung stars into space, setting up light systems, sorry, systems light years away, he also knitted us together in the womb, crafted us, Right down at that subatomic level, he wove our cells and our genes and our molecules into a living, breathing, spiritual being. And he designed you beforehand. Before you were even an embryo, he had the blueprints ready. He formed you and he crafted you, not just your body, but your soul. And not just your soul, but the flow of your life. 
He ordained your days, the psalmist says. Just as he planned all of history, everything that was going to happen, so he plans your life. And now again, that can be so threatening, can't it? It's offensive even. Don't I have free will? Didn't you just say that God gives us the ability to choose? And what about all the bad stuff in my life? What about all the suffering? Why would he ordain that? Well, the God who sees the intricacies of the universe, like an open book, clear as day, he sees time in the same way, past, present, future, they're simultaneously there before him. And in his omnipotency, he can shape it however he likes. That's a reality of Scripture. But to our understanding, to the way God reveals it to us, he gives us free will. We have the ability to choose, to decide, because we're made in his image. But God is still sovereign over all of it. And as for the bad stuff, He ordains it for our good. He's not the author, he's not the source of the bad stuff, but he ordains it for our good, to grow us, to show us who we are in him, but also without him, and to achieve his purposes. Yes, this can be so threatening, but it can also be an amazing comfort. God has it all planned. Everything. The future, your future, it is in his hands. The Bible says he knows the number of hairs on your heads. And he works everything for the good of those who love him. If you surrender to him, you have the all-powerful creating ordainer in your corner. It's a comfort. And then for our calling to witness, to evangelize, well, God has already ordained what will happen. He knows exactly who is going to turn to him. In fact, he's decreed it. And yet he chooses to use us for the task, to call us to that that purpose. It's part of his plan. It's part of our good. He takes our weak attempts and he works miracles. The smallest act of service towards someone, the the smallest conversation about faith can be used to change someone's life and future forever. It's happened billions of times before. It can happen tomorrow. He is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to His power, that is at work within us. And then finally, God judges everyone, which means God judges me too. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. God will repay each person according to what they have done. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept 
for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, we always struggle with this severe change in tone at the end of this psalm, don't we? If it's your favourite, you probably sometimes think, I wish this wasn't in the psalm. I kind of wish it just stopped there after verse 18. I mean, it goes from this beautiful confession of God's precious knowledge and, and his, his presence and switches to this venomous hatred towards enemies. But we shouldn't be too surprised. Remember, it's a personal psalm and, and the author's taken it personally. He's just spent line after line proclaiming the great qualities of God, the, the hugeness of God and how that impacts his relationship with God, but also what it means to be ruled by God. And so when he thinks of those who hate God, and who hate his rule, and who don't want anything to do with him, it incites this passionate prayer for justice. God, if you are all-knowing, if you are all-present, if you are all-powerful, What's with all the bad stuff in this world? And what's with all the bad people, all those people committing injustice who hate other people, who commit violence and do all sorts of wrong? And we could wonder the same things. What are you going to do about them? It's personal, isn't it? And what we often find is that justice as a concept is is never really objective. It's very personal. And so here again we find this important balance. The psalmist not only requests God's judgment on his enemies, he he also calls God to test him, to judge him and his heart and his thoughts and to test for any offensive ways. The psalmist is not willing to judge other people without acknowledging the plank in his own eye. And this is such an important example to follow, that we never call out for justice and we never demand the blood of others without seeing the sin within. We cannot point the finger at those who try to run from God, those who rebel from God, those who seem to flip God the birth without seeing in our own hearts the attempts every day to run from Him and do our own thing. We cannot point the finger at those who ignore the sanctity of life. Perhaps, you know, advocating for abortion and things like that, and we think, no, why? But perhaps not knowing any better when we ourselves neglect the struggling lives of the people around us. And we know better. We need God to test us in every way and every day, always judging our thoughts and our attitudes. And convicting us. Yes, judgment is a threat. It's one of the most offensive things about Christianity. Nobody gets to judge me. I'm my own boss. I can do what I want. But even the justice system shows us that people can't do whatever they want, can they? And if we can accept that we are not our own boss and that we can't do whatever we want, then even judgment can be a comfort. 
Because God does not leave us as he finds us. He does not leave us half-finished or incomplete. He keeps working on us. Just as he formed and he crafted us, so he keeps forming us or transforming us. So he keeps crafting us or sanctifying us every day. And even more importantly than that, he forgives us in Jesus Christ. He places his full judgment on his own son instead of us. And he spares us. God's justice is satisfied. But we don't have to pay the ultimate price of death. And it's both this judgment and this mercy that we need to share with people. Just like Jonah had to share with Nineveh. People need to know there is no refuge from God. Nowhere you can go. But there is refuge in God. And only in God. And this offer, it can only come from the one who knows us completely. Who is with us every moment. Who made our days and who judges our hearts. Only he can lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. We're going to take an opportunity now um, for some quiet, reflective prayer. And I want to use the end parts of each section of the psalm to just highlight four things that you could pray for, and they're up on the screen as well. Praise God that his knowledge is too vast and deep to understand. Because if it were comprehensible to us, it would be far too limited and weak. Ask God to turn your darkness into light. The light of his presence. Whatever darkness it may be, whether the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of sin and temptation, the darkness of external pressures, or the darkness of inner depression or anxiety. Thank God for his precious thoughts and his perfect power, particularly the things that he's revealed in his word for our benefit. As Deuteronomy 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, to him alone, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. And then ask God to test your heart and your mind to find the sin, the offensive ways, to treat them and to lead you in the way everlasting. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So let's just have some time in quiet prayer. Lord, we praise you because you are bigger than us. Far, far bigger. 
You created us, you are above us and you can work anything in our lives. We want to pray that you would continually transform our darkness into light. Whether we are trying to run or seeking you, whether we're struggling with ignorance or sin or circumstances or depression, Lord, we pray that you would shine your light in our hearts. We thank you for your word where you reveal what we need to live for you. And Lord, we pray that you will continually use your word to test us, to convict us, to change us, to grow us, that we might be more and more like Jesus Christ. Amen.